Well, I sometimes don't know how to start when the passage is on betrayal. So I will do my best here. It's heavy. Like the, the Lord betrayed by, by a man. Ugh. Not very comfortable to think about or to consider. So before we dive right into that, I just want to say I'm glad you're here. Welcome to Genesis. My name is Hans. I get to serve here as one of the pastors. And we have been marching along through John. We're considering this kind of a second, the second part of John, the the book of glory, which begins with 13 through 17, Jesus' upper room discourse. That's what it has historically been called. But it doesn't necessarily all happen in the upper room. And if you try to sync up the the timeline between what's going on in the upper room discourse and the synoptics, they're giving different details. And so sometimes it's hard to go, well, what? I, I have a buddy who just goes around and, and really teaches about Jesus quite a bit. And he's like, John screws us all up. Like we just, we're trying to, we're trying to kind of line up. When does this happen? And when does this happen? And different people give different details. And so you go, well, what, what meal are they having? And at what time? And exactly what day? And um, Luckily, our goal here is to go, what is John saying here? What's going on in John? And, and John gives us, I said 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, five chapters dedicated to Jesus speaking to his disciples, instructing them on some of the most difficult moments. Now, imagine this, right? Like if, if you know your time is coming on this earth, what do you begin to do? But, but start to impart differently. The gear changes and you begin to have different types of conversations. And that's what we're going to get. You found for a lot of the Gospel of John to this point, there has, been, there has been Jesus doing signs, chapters 1 through 12. He's been demonstrating who he is. People have been asking questions. He's been saying, I'm showing you who I am the whole time. But at the same time, you, there's a pivot that you can feel in 13 where he's really starting to prepare them for what is right about to happen. He's changing his conversation, and he's only talking with his disciples right now. But in order to only talk with his disciples, there has to be a specific interaction to kind of clear the room. And that's what we see today. There's a question that many of us ask, and it's an appropriate question to ask, which is why? Why does something happen? Why did this happen this way? Why did I lose my job? Why did uh, I lose a child? Why did, and dot, 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 we can fill all this in because we're always trying, everybody here, right? It doesn't matter if you're eight or 80, we're all trying to make sense of the world. We're trying to make sense of the world. Very often we're trying to make sense of the world only for us. We're not really trying to make sense of the world for other people. We're trying to go, I need to know why something happened to me. I need to know why something happened to me. And, and when we see something happen to somebody else, we just go, well, you know, God does everything for a reason. And we kind of give him a platitude and move along with our day. God just does everything. God, God loves you and he has a plan. He's going to work it out. And not always the most comforting words to hear. So we really want to know like everything about what goes on with us. And we want you to know if something bad happens to you or something you don't understand. Well, God's, God's going to teach you something through it. But I want to know more detail. Interestingly, in this passage, we get Jesus and the explanation of why is he betrayed. It seems like an interesting, I mean, just, just imagine for it, like, you just think about all the, all the potential universes in the multiverse of all the ways that this could have gone. Like, why, why a betrayer? 
Why somebody specifically selected to, to turn Jesus in? Why, why that person? How come, how come God chose that way to bring about the end that needed to come, which results in the redemption of all who believe? Why that? That's an interesting thing, and that's what I want to look at today. What does Judas's betrayal teach us about God's salvation? That moment of betrayal. And Jesus is about to prepare. So what you're going to have is, is this moment where they have to have a difficult conversation, and then the room is cleared. And what you begin to see following after verse 30 is Jesus going, now let's talk. And he starts to have serious conversations, preparing his disciples for what's about to come. But there has to be this moment So we'll see the need for Judas here, the heart of Jesus, the confusion of the disciples. I mean, I'm so comforted that the disciples still are like, where's Judas going? Is he going to go get food? Is he going to go give money to the poor? Like, why is he leaving? And why does he look really bothered? You could say that. And then the offer of Jesus, all reminding us of the plan of God. Now we start very quickly with the need of Judas, or the need for Judas in, we'll call it salvation history, in the entire scope of what's going on. Why Judas? Because the Messiah needed to be betrayed. Now that's an interesting word, needed to be. Uh, but the reason for that betrayal, actually Jesus will tell us, is to fulfill what God had revealed even prior. That, that if Jesus is to fulfill all that was written in Scripture, then when we see, Jesus will even kind of say, let me help you understand why this happened at this time and in this way. Now, Jesus had just said in verse 17, which is where we broke last week, if you know these things, and this was about the example of serving, if you know these things, you will be blessed for, uh, if you do them. But then he pivots. But I'm not talking about all of you. Blessed if you do them doesn't mean all of you are blessed if you do them. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is an interesting little phrase of Jesus. Like, why is he saying all of these things? If you're confused, you're right in the same boat with all the other disciples who are going, what is this guy saying? We were enjoying a good meal. My feet are clean. And now he's instructing on some odd part of this life. And I'm not really sure what it means. Well, let's go back to John 6, 70. He'll be right behind me here. Jesus answered them. This is from, you know, Half, half a sermon series ago. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? So he speaks in John six seventy about the disciples, and he highlights one of them being a devil. And even in that moment, in John six seventy, the disciples are like, I don't know what you mean. I don't know who, who, who this is. They think everything's going just fine because they do not have the understanding of the Messiah. They do not know salvation history. They are confused and they're just kind of doing whatever Jesus says, but they are dense. Welcome to our world. Now, he says, I'm not speaking of all you. I know who I have chosen, which means that even within the 12, not all of the 12 are the 12. You'll hear this, this theme throughout Scripture of a remnant. There's always, the Lord is always, even, even in times of 
incredible unfaithfulness of God's people, there are always examples of faithfulness. And so he goes, now, I'm not talking about all of you. I know who I've chosen. And then he gives this. Why the betrayal? The betrayal actually fulfills scripture as written in the Psalms. This idea, Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me, which has to do with, with, with bringing about an end or bringing about, the, bringing about some kind of turn. Lifted his heel, wants to see my downfall, but there is an idea here of intimacy. It is not as if this is a business deal gone bad. This is not like just a double agent. Right? This is somebody who is a part of the cadre of Christ followers, or, or the ones that, that think they're Christ followers, following along with him, but one of them specifically in a unique, and you could even say familial or, or friendship with Jesus, very close. Like if you ask anybody, kind of, who are the 12 disciples? I'm sure the people who kind of followed around and orbited Jesus' world would name Judas. They wouldn't go, well, this guy's Looney Tunes. He'd be a part of the group, and we're going to learn that he had an important role within the group. But there's this passage in Psalm 41.9 where you can see the psalmist talking about the betrayal by a close friend. That kind of betrayal is serious. Again, it's not a business deal gone bad. It's not somebody sabotaging. It's nothing like that. It is when the person that you trust the most that you care about does something to you that you can't, you can't recover from, humanly speaking. It marks you indelibly, and you are never the same because of it. In fact, I would guess, if anybody in this room, let's just say, has been, been harmed in their marriage, you act a different way. You act a different way. You're probably less trusting you have less confidence maybe about your spouse or your spouse's behavior. It, it carries us with it. I mean, we all operate with the reflexes of our wounds and our betrayals. Everybody does it. We have some kind of way where you know, even, I was talking to some baseballers right before this, like in a game yesterday, our pitcher who throws like gas, like just kind of came up and in on somebody, which is really cool. But it's, like, it's also terrifying if you're 10 years old and like 55 just goes, whoom, right? Like you don't swing again. Like you just go, I'm just going to, I just want to strike out. I'm going to stay right here and I'm not going to do anything because I'm not sure what's going to happen now, right? Like all of those emotions that we feel when life doesn't go as we thought it would be, but you bring that into the context of an intimate relationship, a friendship, and it is so hard to recover, both for the betrayer and the betrayed. So hard to recover. In the rest of your life, often, because we aren't Jesus, the rest of your life you are spent undoing that. And you probably have the therapy bills to, to deal with it as well. You go, yeah, also my budget goes to it because I'm trying to process what's going on in my heart. And now I have anxiety all the time. We have this psalm and we have Jesus saying plainly, Scripture will be fulfilled, which means, even though it was happening in the time of the psalmist, means that Jesus is going to bring about a greater fulfillment than what was written in the psalm centuries prior. 
That what happens to Jesus is a fuller realization of what that psalm was saying. So everybody in this room can probably understand betrayal in some way. But not everybody understands betrayal the way that Jesus does. Because there's only one Messiah. Judas fulfills scripture about betraying the Messiah. Now this might seem harsh to go, but, but Judas, Judas was there in part to fulfill scripture? Yes. Judas was there in part to fulfill scripture. Jesus says as much. Jesus the word goes, and then this was revealed in the Psalms. It's happening more fully right now that I'm being betrayed. Now, the disciples, of course, do not understand what's going on. And we'll get there in just a moment. But the need for Judas was betrayal. And I, I'm going to say this. The betrayal of Judas is recovered from by Jesus. It's the one time that I know of in, in human history where the depth of the betrayal did not undo the plan but it stands firm even today. When we say, you read in Hebrews, our reading plan has had just finished up Hebrews in our reading plan. When you go through the book of Hebrews and you see all that goes on and all the ways that Jesus is better and that Jesus is our high priest and Jesus is the one who is better than Moses, better than angels, better than the tabernacle, better than the priesthood, the earthly priesthood that we saw. He's better than all of those things and the exhortation then is, and so you should run to him. You should go to him because he's better than anything. But even in, even in the moment of betrayal, he was the most betrayed any human has ever been. He was the most harmed, the most affected. This isn't just false testimony. This is betraying and crossing the God of the universe. And it's part of his plan. It's uncomfortable to think that the betrayal was a part of God's plan from the beginning. It wasn't, it wasn't something that... that God had to come up with down the line because, you know, we got to make it work right. No, it was a part of it. Not an easy reality, but it is the reality. And it's interesting because even though Jesus has that, that I could say, unwavering confidence, he knows what's to come. The one who is about to be betrayed is still troubled. That's the heart of Jesus in this moment you're going to get this kind of influx of emotions and truth and, and scripture fulfilled all in these verses. And you see the heart of Jesus troubled. We talked about the need of Judas, but the heart of Jesus being troubled. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So he just references the verse, and now he's actually bringing that into the room and saying, somebody here will betray me. And that truth troubles him. You see the emotions of Jesus in these final hours in ways revealed that you had not seen prior. Why would Jesus be troubled why would this bother Jesus? It's not because he's insecure. 
He's not, not, God isn't insecure. It's not because he says, well, I don't, what, if this, what if this feels bad? You don't think he's uh, 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 unaware of the pain that is about to befall him? The treachery that's about to, do you think he's oblivious to these things? No, he's not. And so why would, he, why would he be troubled if he is so sure of what is to be and also realizes that it is necessary? This is the hour for which he came. He's already said that. The hour has come. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Let's go. And yet still he's troubled. He's troubled because he's a man. He's invested in these men. He's given himself over to them. He has served them. Judas being one of the twelve whose feet he washed. And yet even as he does it, he knows what is to come. He's a man troubled by what is about to come while knowing that it must come. And as we get closer to the cross, we see that weight increase. It continues to manifest itself in the heart and life of Jesus. Many of us are familiar with Jesus' prayer at Gethsemane, where he's aching and he's like bleeding. Like the intensity and the pressure is so serious that he's agonizing. But God doesn't agonize just like man does, even as he knows the outcome. Knowing his betrayal is moments away. And this is, this is what's glorious about we needed for our salvation an advocate who has been through everything we have been and yet was without sin. That in his betrayal, he does not sin. In his agony, in his troubled heart, he does not sin. When his disciples scatter and are abandoned and act like they don't even know the man, he does not sin. We need the advocate who in every moment, facing any human experience, any moment where you and I would have failed, Jesus does not. Any time where we would have, like, we all have the best of intentions. I know that. I know that. I was speaking with a, a young mom this week, and she had shared about how difficult a first pregnancy was, how difficult it was, and how difficult a second pregnancy, should the Lord provide a second pregnancy, would also be. And you think, yes, that's so loving, right? Birth pangs, that's great. But then what does she also say? She said this. She goes, and I have some resentment about that. I, I, I'm, I don't like that. I don't like that that's, that's going to happen. And so, yes, absolutely worth it. But also, that's a lot of pain. And I'm not comfortable with all that might be brought through that. That's us, right? I know what's going to come, and I know it's going to be better. But if I'm honest with myself, I'm also angry and going, why me? Why this? Why now? We even jokingly, right, if any of you had a difficult pregnancy, you might look at your kid when they get older and go, do you know what I've been through for you? We even just kind of use it, right, as a, as, a, as a carrot. Do you know what I've, you better do this thing. Do you know what I've endured? Do you know how many bills we had? Do you know how many hospital stays we had? Do you know how, how much I suffered for you? 
We even do those, those types of things just to say, this is where I am. And in all of those ways, we're also declaring, and I'm not Jesus. Who's still steady and faithful and true and good. And yet, where are we? The disciples hear this, and they, it's like they're picking their nose. They have no idea. They've paid no attention. They cannot process what Jesus is saying. So this is what's happening. Jesus gives this line. He gives this line. You notice I'm going to miss a verse, and that's on purpose. They look at one another. They're confused. They're wondering. And they say, who is it? What actually happens in verse 24 is that Peter goes to Jesus, or, or looks, at, looks at probably John, the disciple Jesus loved. That's the, often historically understood John's there. Peter's at a different spot at the table. He doesn't want to open his mouth too loud, which is rather un-Peter-like. So he understands the moment. He hears Jesus say, one of you will betray me. Let's just assume he's kind of at a distance, right? They're sitting at a U. Remember that? They're reclining at this U, and Jesus is there. It seems like Jesus is near Judas and John in this moment, that they can talk. But to have a conversation across the room, it's a little different. So what does, what does Peter do? But he looks at John and makes eyes, and is like, and John's going, hey, Lord. Who is it? Who is this one? They don't know. I, I'd like to think, I take a little bit of pride in, in, in not being foolish. I think you would too. You're like, well, I'm not a total idiot. And that's, that's a good thing. I'm glad for all of us here. Do you think after three years with people, you'd get a clue as to who the betrayer would be? Yeah, you do. Thank you very much. Like, you're kind of walking around going, 12 guys, Jesus is there. You would think you would have a good idea as to the one, but they think after, after three years, they're going, who is it? Is it, it's not me, is it? I mean, that's what you start doing. Is it, is it me? It's not, it can't be me. It has to be. I don't know. Who is it? So John gets deputized by Peter. He asks, and in just a moment we'll see what happens. But they're totally unaware. Often at my house, at night, my kids just barge into our room. They love it. And uh, so sometimes we lock it, but other times we don't. They barge in. And it could be 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock. Sometimes they come down at 12 and go, I haven't fallen asleep yet. I've been reading a book. And I'm like, that's great. You don't need to tell me that. You can just go right back on up to bed. And I would have never known this conversation had happened. And that's fine. But very often, one comes in and opens up the door and asks a question. And if you delay long enough or you walk over to the door, you see another head <laughs> behind them waiting to get the response. And then you realize he's the one that wanted to know. This is the one who's just asking the question. You figure it out. And it's funny because it's usually the youngest who's the head behind there going, what's happening here? 
Or they're at the top of the stairs where they can hear the conversation, but they're not going to be seen. Thank you, Peter. We have been living this out in our home for years now, and you probably have as well. Now, one thing that I had mentioned here is verse 21. We have to think about the disciples for a minute. Jesus says this. He says, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And this is pitted against the unawareness of the disciples. So the disciples are totally unaware of what's going on, and yet in this moment, Jesus is actually increasing the responsibility that a disciple has. And he's preparing them for what the disciples will do. Now, we learn from the synoptics that the disciples are sent out to do ministry on behalf of Jesus. They're sent out with delegated authority. They have a specific role, a specific way in which they are to operate. But what Jesus is saying as he's getting to this moment, and there is a fissure in the relationships of the disciples, at least one verses 11, there's something happening, and he's saying, in this context of somebody will betray, when you go and someone receives you, they're receiving me, and when they're receiving me, they're receiving my Father. And so in that, he's actually increasing the importance of the ministry of a disciple. Remember, a lot of what goes on in the Gospel of John from this part forward in the upper room is where he is preparing them for what is to be. That's why he's going to talk about the Spirit, what the Spirit's going to do. He's going to talk about the persecution that is going to come, the suffering that they will endure. That's why he prays for the unity of the disciples and of us. He's praying for these things. He's praying to his Father. That's what we get in chapter 17. We'll spend three weeks in chapter 17 just looking at how Jesus prays because he probably seems like a pretty good model of how to pray. And so we see as, he's re- as we recognize there's somebody in the room who's going to betray Jesus. He also says, and what you are going to do is eternally important. Because those who receive you receive me, and those who receive me receive my Father. I don't think we think about this very much, do we? We just kind of think of ourselves as no names and nobodies, and that's true. You're a no name and a nobody selected by God to go bring his name to the nations. And so you're not a no name or a nobody anymore. You have his name. And very often, and it's unfortunate, we downplay who we are in the Lord because we don't take those words of Jesus very seriously. If you go out and people receive you, they're not receiving you, they're receiving me. We don't take that seriously. So you know, I am somebody sent by Jesus into this world to represent him, to speak of him, to declare him. But that's not often what we think about. We resonate much more with the unawareness, the confusion, the weirdos there in the room who go, I don't know what's going to happen. Peter, Tap, and John are going, can you please tell him what's going on? We get all of those things, but we don't realize that Jesus is actually stating for us as his disciples that what we do has enormous value because it's about him. And this is all about preparing the disciples for the world that is going to come in which Jesus is not physically present okay now let's continue on in 28 and 29 before we do the morsel after the morsel is given and Judas is selected we see this response from Jesus which stays in that kind of state of being unaware no one knew at the table uh, why he said this to him what he had just said was what you're about to do do quickly he says that to Judas and the disciples like why did he say that I don't know why he said that and you know what they think that he is going out to buy something. 
because he had the money bag. So Judas has the money bag, and so he just figured Jesus was saying, we need food or supplies for the feast. And in fact, you have to remember that the Passover and what's going on here then ends with another feast. And so maybe it's like, we just need to be prepared for the feasting that is going to go on before everything closes down. And so we need to do that. Anybody, now this is a rather secular way to look at it, but anybody who knows like, hey, we're going to have a lot of family over on Christmas Day, or we're going to have a lot of family over here, like we better do the shopping early because it's going to be really hard to do what we need to do the day of. And so they're sitting there probably putting the connecting dots going, maybe, the, maybe Jesus is sending him out to do food because all they hear is what you're doing do quickly. And so they're going, oh, well, Jesus must want him to get, get back fast. Because we're enjoying our time together. And so that's really how they think about it. It is so, again, comforting to see what goes on. But this happens right after Jesus calls them out. So in order to understand more of that weight in the heart of Jesus, let's look at verses 26 and 27. Because I talked about how there's going to be an offering that Jesus gives. And this is, it's, it's heart-wrenching and beautiful, okay? So John asked the question, who is it? What's going to happen here? Jesus says, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Okay, that's verse 26. So he dipped the morsel and he gave it to Judas. That's why you say, like, I don't think he's throwing it across the the room. Very likely that Judas was right beside Jesus. You have John, you have Judas. They're nearby, right? They're going to be where Jesus can do this. And clearly because the disciples were unaware of all that was going on, they weren't even close enough to hear what Jesus was saying. So you have John's eyewitness account of what Jesus was saying because John was right there. You have Judas nearby, but the rest of the disciples just go, what was that about? What, what did he just say? All they hear is Jesus say, as Judas gets up, what you're about to do, go quickly. So that's what we have. He had taken the morsel. Satan entered into him. Kind of uncomfortable to think about, isn't it? That what this is, is all a part of Satan's work to, I would say, to try and, and uh, unsuccessfully thwart God's plans. So Satan, right, it's a spiritual battle. Satan enters into Judas to do what he is about to do, even though it's already been put in his heart, now it's, like, it's almost like, okay, it's go time. And Judas is doing something. And Jesus says, what you're about to do, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now that line itself terrifies me. Because Jesus is staring his betrayer in the face and says, get to work. Do it, do it quickly. And we're only probably hours away from this happening. Get to work. Now, <laughs> I, would, I would, you know, Katie, bar the door. Let's do something in order to stop this from happening. That's the human Hans response to anything like this. I don't want this to happen. I'm not that interested. But what do we have in Jesus? But well, we have Jesus looking at Judas and saying, do it quickly. Because Jesus is resolved. He knows what is going to happen. The disciples, of course, in their confusion, because we see that. Jesus is, or Peter's about to cut somebody's ear off, so he's still certain that he can stop whatever's coming. Good on him, right? You, you love to have somebody like that on the team who's just so overconfident that, that they go, we can, we can do this. We're going to keep Jesus from dying. We can do this. 
give me a knife and an ear. That didn't work. And again, this is the same guy we'll hear about next week who's like, I'm never going to betray you. So Peter's going on a roll. Last week, he's saying, wash my whole body. You should never wash my feet. Jesus goes, I have to. This is how it works. He goes, wash all of me. Jesus goes, no, I'm not going to do that. Like, I have a, there's a way this happens. Now he's like, hey, John, could you please ask Jesus what he means? Because I'm not going to ask him in front of all these guys. Then next week, he's like, I'll never leave you. I'll never leave you, Jesus. So I love the confidence. You need that kind of confidence. But very soon, the words out of his mouth will essentially be, Jesus who? Jesus who? So all of that, you know, braggadocious, I'm so sure I'm going to be who I need to be in the moment. Mm-mm. Doesn't happen. Does not happen. Jesus and Judas, and maybe John, maybe John because he was there, but Jesus and Judas know what's happening. And it's, for me, incredibly uncomfortable. But again, we had to say, why Judas? Why betrayal? Why all of this? Because this was the betrayal to end all betrayals. This was the crossing of God that allowed us, you could use preacher terms like cross to God or something like that. This is what you get to see. Now let's just, let's just remember the moment. They're there as friends in a setting where they're remembering God's salvation of the nation of Israel, bringing them from slavery to life, giving them the law, giving them the way that they're going to operate for him. They've been doing this as a memorial, not always faithfully, not like the, the nation is not always faithfully remembered to do this work. So they, they're remembering this. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. This is one of those moments, right? Like it just, it just everything seems to be fitting appropriately. And then Jesus kind of speaks into it and says, not all of you are my people. I've selected all of you, but one of you will betray me. That kind of puts a damper on the night. If you're just saying, well, this was going well until Jesus decided to tell us something that really was uncomfortable. All of this is happening. There's the interaction between Jesus and Judas. The disciples don't know what's happening. They go, oh, I guess he's going to go buy food. And what do we get about the plan of God in all of this? It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed one bit. No man can change it. No scheme can come up against it because it is God's scheme. That's the comfort that you get from all of the discomfort in this passage. Jesus is really ours from the realization on earth of his betrayal. He is but hours from a trial and one of the worst of beatings that one could ever receive. Death on a cross. He is hours from all of these things. And what does he do? But he marches forward without doubt like we would have, without a change of plan because there's no plan to change. It came from him. Even with the disciples totally aloof, not sure what's happening, The plan of God marches forward. Why? Because it's God's plan. One of the the most 
comforting truths that I get is that there was no other way. Because if there were another way, it would have happened. And yet, for men, women, and children to be made right with God, God had to be betrayed by one of those closest to him on earth. It was a part of the plan. We love to know every detail, everything, every purpose of all things, but to say it fulfilled scripture, it was necessary. It was the most really intimate of betrayals because Judas is crossing Jesus. And if you know the rest of the story, you know that Judas could not live with what he did. That he felt the weight of what he did as well. The plan of God moves forward to work out its inevitable and necessary end, which is the provision of salvation for the world. For the world. The death of Jesus at the hands of a guilty man and at the hands of guilty men so that those same men might be offered life. So that they might be able to be made right with God So think of your own life. You can even probably think of the past 24 hours. How many times in the past 24 hours have your plans changed? You go, well, we were going to leave at this time, and now we're leaving at that time. We were going to take one car, and now we're taking two cars. We weren't going to have a sick kid, but now they're all sick. I thought I was going to be taking them, but now mom's taking them. It was going to happen like this, but we ran out of gas, and the car broke down kind of at the same time. Shocking, right? All of those things happen. The moment, right? All, all, anytime we have a plan, it's like, well, that's not the plan anymore. And if you just read the text that Courtney and I have together, it's generally just coordinating who's doing what, right? Like, like it's like not even kissy face emojis anymore. Like, there's nothing romantic about like our communication life. It's just, hey, are you? Did anybody remember to get the kids? Because the school's calling me. And I'm busy, or my phone's on do not disturb. So it's really just, can you do this? Can we do that? Who's going to do that? We have this thing at six. Are you going to be home in time? Am I going to be home in time? Don't forget, I'm gone all night. Like, all of that is our life. And then it changes all the time. But what we get in this moment is a plan that was set before the foundations of the earth that never changed. And it never changed, even with a room of people totally dumbfounded as to what was going on. Like the plan to save the world included Jesus, his Father, the Spirit, right? One God, three persons, one essence. Like, like, it, it, like, and that room of people, right, the boardroom, doesn't have a clue. They're looking at it through their own lens, and yet what happens? The plan marches forward. It was always going to happen in the way that was necessary. And the way that was necessary has Jesus as the one who has experienced everything. He has experienced everything we have experienced and yet was without sin. Now think about it for a moment. Is not betrayal by a closest friend one of the worst human experiences that you could ever have? I mean, just, 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 just thinking about what Jesus experienced. 
Isn't it one of the worst things that could have ever happened? Many of you have probably experienced that in some way. Your families might not be the same. They might not even spend holidays in the same way because some time ago somebody said something or did something that has been unable to be reconciled. And so even when we are at our worst, where can we go? To the one who was and always has been the perfect one who's experienced it, whose heart has agonized at someone betraying him and yet was without sin. The heaviness, even I feel as I read these words of Jesus and you see the interaction, was a necessary part of restoring us back with God. And Jesus endured it because it was the plan. Because men, women, and children being made right with God, our Father, is what they had intended. And so he marches forward. And in that last moment in chapter 17, he gets some time to pray to his Father. But once Judas leaves the room, for those final chapters that we will see up until his, his trial and his crucifixion, we're going to see Jesus, who knows what's coming, look at his disciples in the face and prepare them for the life that will be. Why? Because God's plan has never changed. And he will endure and walk through all that there is in anything that you have experienced relationally, anything that you have experienced with regard to temptation, anything that you have experienced where you go, no one else in the world has experienced this. That is not true. We have one who has experienced anything that could come yet did not sin because he was God. And so... Like you see John always say, what must we do? Run to Jesus. In, in, in the most difficult of moments where we're going, why this? Why now? Why him? Why her? Why this situation? In the most difficult of moments, we are able to run to Jesus because Jesus can say, I know. And I'm here. And he saves. It doesn't matter. What got us to that moment of agony and brokenness, Jesus is there. And it's glorious because so often we need it, we don't even know. Only God himself can stand up against the forces of evil, Satan entering Judas, heart sickness being troubled, and betrayal by a dear friend, and stand his necessary ground for others. It is Jesus. He has done it all.